We are here advocating for the issues that are important to the green industry. Hey, everybody ought to know by now, you can't do business without politics. We believe that these ordinances violate the Texas Constitution. It's coming straight out of Austin, and it's something the Texas green industry ought to know about. This is the Green Report, bringing the capital to you. Hello, TNLA members. My name is Rich Kling, and my company, Merchant Owl, is proud to be an endorsed services provider of TNLA. We offer discounted pricing on credit card processing and POS systems to all TNLA members, and we guarantee our savings. Contact us today for your free savings analysis. Okay, folks, welcome back to the TNLA Green Report. I'm your host, Ryan Skrbarczyk, and today's guest, we have Tiffany Dow Lashmet with the Texas Agriculture Law Blog. Tiffany, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. So tell us a little bit about um, your blog that you have online. I think you're also an attorney with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service, but why don't you kind of tell us about your background? That's right, yeah. So um, I grew up on my family farm and ranch out of New Mexico um, and was real involved in 4-H and FFA and, and all those sort of ag things growing up. Um, I have my undergrad degree in agricultural economics from Oklahoma State, and then my law degree from the University of New Mexico. Uh, for the last seven years, I have been working for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension as an agricultural law specialist, um, which is basically my dream job. I get to kind of travel the state and work with uh, farmers and ranchers and rural landowners to help educate them about legal issues that could impact their operations. Um, I do that it, usually when we're not quarantined. I do that in live presentations. <laughs> um, I've also got the Texas Agriculture Law Blog that you mentioned, where I post um, just information about ag law. You know, if new cases come out, if I do checklists or anything like that, it gets posted there. Um, and then I also host a podcast that's called Ag Law in the Field, um, where I interview uh, different ag attorneys on different ag law topics. So just lots of different avenues to try and educate people on legal issues uh, and their rights and responsibilities. That's a pretty neat deal. And I think obviously you've got a great audience, um, you know, salt of the earth constituency to represent the, actually the, so I told you this via email when we talked about doing this podcast interview, but I think the first time that I saw you present in person, I was actually a staffer in the Capitol and you gave a presentation, um, on ag agriculture law, uh, to a group of Capitol staffers at, uh, yeah. it was like the farm bureau ag day or something like that. And just thought it was great. So it's, it's your, your website is a great resource, but if anybody is just looking for some expertise in this general area, and it is kind of a niche area, you, you're, you do a lot of uh, good work at trying to help educate folks. What, is, what, well, what can, I appreciate that. Yeah. I like to say, I mean, it, it's really a fun job because it lets me sort of, you know, put my interest for ag and for the law together. And like you say, I mean, there's no better people to work with than, you know, people in rural Texas. So it's just, it's a great job. Yeah. What is, what can folks expect to find on the, um, on your blog? I mean, what kind of, what kind of content do you try to curate there? Sure. So I try to, I guess my number one goal is to try to curate content that is somehow practical and useful. Like I say, for rural landowners or ag producers. And so that may be like, look, the Texas Supreme Court just ruled on a case 
here's the, the you know, info about the ruling, and here's how this could apply to you. So I try to do that. Um, I do a little segment sometimes called Questions from Tiffany's Desk, where if someone has called or emailed me with a question that I think is good and kind of applicable to other people, uh, I'll answer that on, in a blog post. Um, I'll do you know, fat sheets. Uh, I do different checklists. And I really, like I say, my focus really is trying to give something that, that is useful for people, not just like a theoretical, you know, law professor type discussion, but something that people like my dad, who's running a, a farm and ranching operation, can use in their everyday life. Yeah. Layman's terms. Kind that's of, right. Yeah. That's right. Accessible, accessible for your everyday business center, which is good. I mean, that's our constituency, too. We want to get folks practical knowledge um, that's going to help them. Uh, in their growing operation, in their retail operation, in their contracting operation. So, uh, again, I would encourage anybody who's not familiar with it to check out the blog. It's really neat. One of the there's a handful of topics I'd really like to just kind of brush through today, um, and we'll stay high level because uh, a lot of them are obviously uh, dynamic and in motion um, in with with various aspects. But um, some of our members are probably familiar with uh, WOTUS, and I'll start off there if you're fine with that. Um, but the Obama administration had, um, through the EPA, had uh, kind of put out a proposal to redefine navigable waters. And it was this big, 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 giant thing. I remember because I was in the, um, again, I was in, as a staffer in a legislative office, and I remember a lot, a lot of the agriculture uh, advocacy groups getting really fired up and trying to direct their membership to submit comments to the EPA. And I'm sure there were probably tens of thousands of those. And it was a long, drawn-out, protracted kind of legal affair. And then the Trump administration comes in, and we have this new uh, this new proposal. Can you – can you? am I leading us down the right path there? <laughs> Did I summarize that? You are. That you are. And, uh, you know, for, for people that are trying to, you know, do different writing and stuff on agricultural law, WOTUS is like the gift that keeps on giving because <laughs> it just keeps coming back, right? Yeah, so, so just very basic background. WOTUS is actually – the reason that matters is because it's included in the Federal Clean Water Act, mm-hmm. right? And the Clean Water Act was passed back in the 70s to try and clean up the nations like rivers and streams uh, and just prevent them from being polluted. So a, a topic that I think no matter which side of the aisle you're on, we can all get behind is we need clean water. Uh, and so the Clean Water Act gave federal jurisdiction to the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers over waters of the United States. Well, we need to know what that means, right, so that we know what the scope of that jurisdiction is. And Congress didn't define that term in the act. So it used the term, didn't define the term, and we've spent the last, you know, 50 years bickering about what it means. Mm-hmm. And so, like you say, in 2015, the Obama administration put forth what they called the WOTUS rule uh, that, that attempted to... Um, define the scope of waters of the United States. Lots of comments on both sides of that rule. Uh, certain groups uh, vary for it, saying that you'll know, be kind of, I think that it would be fair to say it was a more expansive reading of the term than, than case law previously had been, and, and subgroups like that. Other groups, a lot of ag groups, a lot of industry groups, um, construction interests, those sorts of things. Uh, land developers didn't like it, thought it was too broad. 
uh, we had lots of lawsuits, and we don't have to go into all of that. When the Trump administration comes in, uh, President Trump told his EPA to go in and redo the rules and basically said, you're going to draft, you should draft this more in line with uh, an opinion from Justice Scalia uh, in a case called Rapanos. And so uh, on June 22nd, so in, in about three weeks, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, which is the Trump version of the definition of WOTUS, will be final and published in the Federal Register. Uh, it is certainly a narrower view than the Obama rule, um, if, you, if you look at them kind of side by side. Uh, and again, it, it's the, the question here is what's the scope of the federal jurisdiction? Interestingly, there are lawsuits already pending challenging the navigable waters protection rule on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> so, in there, politics, in politics, they, they say if you're taking fire from both sides, you're probably in a good place. But I don't know if the same thing applies <laughs> right. in law. Well, if that's an accurate, you know, Maxim, then the EPA is in good shape. Because <laughs> they've got, um, there's some environmental groups that have filed suits uh, and, and some states, several states as well. Um, I, I guess what you might put in the, the blue state category have filed suits saying that the rule is too narrow, um, that it. Uh, needs to be broader. There are some challenges to some of the procedural um, uh, steps that were taken uh, in the rules. So there are challenges basically saying this rule is too narrow. On the flip side, uh, there are some challenges um, saying this rule is too broad and it needed to be narrower. Uh, an example of that is some cattle raisers groups, uh, New Mexico, Washington, and I think Oregon is the third, filed lawsuits challenging that. And so what we're going to end up is, is back in court um, with lawsuits, you know, challenging this rule. I really do think eventually the issue of the scope of WOTUS is something that's going to have to either be fixed by Congress or decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Congress could come in and, and amend the Clean Water Act to add a definition. They haven't done that in 50 years, but they could. I think more likely what's going to happen is at some point these challenges are going to be taken up by the United States Supreme Court and we will get a ruling from them that tells us what the scope is. Well, and that seems to be uh, kind of the, the crux of the issue over the last few years, and you did a really good job laying out the, the background of it. Uh, there were groups that wanted everything down to a, run, a rain puddle uh, regulated, and then there are folks who... I think in, in, in reading an article about the, the cattlemen's groups who have filed suit on the recent rule, uh, only want it restricted to basically stuff you can transport commerce on. Truly navigable in the sense that you can yes. actually basically drive a boat down, I guess. Right. Um, so how does that right. work and, when and, there and are... the problem, right, where it gets trickier, the places in between. Yeah. Because that, realistically, right, we're not going to regulate rain puddles. Right. I, I also don't know that they're going to win on their argument of, you know, how to be able to put a boat down it. I don't know that that's realistic either. Where things get tricky, right, are tributaries that lead to uh, navigable water, mm -hmm. right? So, like, let's think about the Brazos River and some of the tributaries that lead to the Brazos River. Are those regulated or not? That's the area where we have the, the real differences in, like, the Trump rule and the Obama rule. Um, one of the big differences is the issue of ephemeral streams, right? Streams that flow only when it rains, for example. Are those in or out? Those are the, the harder questions where I think, you know, the nuances are, and frankly, where the lawsuits are, are, are over questions like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, how does this work with multiple lawsuits on different sides filed in different jurisdictions? I mean, what's a, what's a likely path forward with that? It, it, well, this is going to be typical lawyer for you. I think it's just <laughs> going to depend on, you know, the judges, uh, what they do. It, we don't really know. Um, for the Obama rule, there were, same thing, multiple lawsuits in different jurisdictions. Uh, at one point, a court entered a nationwide stay on that rule and just sort of said, time out, it's not going to be in effect anywhere in the country until we get some of this legal stuff sorted out. Long, I'll spare you the details, but that got lifted. Uh, at one point, we had where certain states that were involved in one specific lawsuit had an injunction against the rule. Other states didn't. Yeah. And so for a period of time, we had different rules in different states, which that was a patchwork <laughs> mess. Yeah. So any of those things could happen. I mean, we could see a nationwide stay. We could not. We could see this go into effect everywhere in the country, and we just have lawsuits. We could end up with a patchwork. It just sort of depends on what the different courts do. Well, needless to say, folks who are interested in this and property owners who are concerned about potentially having uh, impounded water on their property uh, regulated or, I mean, we <clears throat> we have members who have uh, live water on their property. If they're interested in it, follow along with Tiffany's blog and obviously there'll be a lot of news over the next, um, I'm assuming, couple of years on this as these things play out in court. Yeah, no, that, I think that's exactly right. And I'll just, just very briefly, Ryan, the, the, the frustrating thing about this rule for me, right, I mean, it's all super interesting from a legal standpoint when I sit in my, you know, office in town. A as a rural landowner, this is really frustrating because what I'll tell you is I don't think any of the rules give landowners much certainty where we can walk out in the pasture and say yes or no, this is in or out. And that's a really frustrating thing as a landowner when I'm just trying to do the right thing but I can't figure out what that is because of the way these rules are written. And so, you know, it's frustrating from a landowner standpoint, but it's certainly an issue that people need to be aware of and keep up with because it's such a major uh, topic. Yeah. Well, let's bring it to Texas. Um, I, I One of the other topics I saw on your blog was a, a, a survey of the 50 states on liability on pesticide drift. And for our members, they might be familiar with some of the stuff I've put out because uh, – the Texas House uh, Ag Committee has looked at this a couple of times, and they actually have a charge for an interim study on pesticide drift. So it's an issue in Texas that is not going away, um, and, it, and it probably affects some sectors of agriculture way more than others, um, but, sure. still, uh, but still impactful for anybody who's using um, these ag chemicals and who has an applicator's license. So what's, what's some of the work you all have done on that recently? Yeah, so it is a big issue, and it's one that I get um, speaking requests on quite a bit. Uh, I try to focus my work on, you know, looking at the different legal issues that someone could face. Um, so from the applicator side, right, if I'm the person who's applying the pesticide, you know, what do I need to know? What are the potential legal claims that could be made against me? And I think it's important to understand what those claims could be to then understand how to protect myself and make sure I don't do something wrong that gets me sued. Um, and so we've looked a little bit at, you know, what are the different legal claims? By far, the most common claim you'll see in a pesticide drift scenario is a negligence claim. And that's just very simply the question of, look, did that applicator act as a reasonable person when they were applying that chemical? 
the, the most important thing for any applicator, right, is to follow the label. Yep. Um, you know, that we always say the label's the law. Mm-hmm. And, and from a negligent perspective as well, right, if you can prove that they did not follow the label, boy, from a plaintiff's perspective, that's a pretty tough case because that, that's pretty good evidence you didn't act reasonably, right? So, yeah. so negligence claims are by far the most common. There are kind of two interesting issues, and that's what that 50-state survey was on. One of them is the idea of could um, a person be held strictly liable if for pesticide drift? And that's strict liability. Unlike negligence, we don't look at your actions and try to decide if they are um, uh, reasonable or not. For strict liability, they basically say, look, there are some things that we do that are just so inherently dangerous that we're going to impose liability if something happens and we don't care how reasonable you were. So the law school example on that is if you own a tiger in your backyard and you have him in a cage with 10 locks, right? That's pretty reasonable. Like you've taken a lot of steps to protect people. Yeah. But if that tiger manages to get out and bite somebody, you're liable. We don't care how reasonable you were. And so the question is then, is uh, a application of pesticide subject to strict liability? Um, it's a question that there is kind of a jurisdictional split. Uh, if you look at the, the cases across the country, 27 states have addressed this issue, um, and eight of them have said aerial application is ultra-hazardous and strict liability should apply. Uh, Texas is not one of those. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't directly addressed it, but there are some lower court cases that indicate we likely would not hold pesticide applicators to a strict liability standard. Um, the second issue that I think is really interesting and one that probably people don't think about is um, if you hire somebody to come apply pesticide for you, you hire an independent contractor, right, like a, a spray company that has an air tractor that's going to come you know, spray your, your mm-hmm. cotton or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, could you as the landowner be liable for the actions of that um, independent contractor. The general rule is no, that you're not liable for the acts of an independent contractor unless the activity is inherently dangerous. And so here comes the question, right? Is the application, especially the aerial application of pesticide, inherently dangerous? If it is, the landowner could potentially be liable for the actions of that contractor. And again, we did this 50-state survey. Um, a, a good number of states that have looked at this issue have said yes, that, that aerial application is inherently dangerous, and there could be that liability. Um, again, in Texas, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled. There's at least one lower court case that makes it look like potentially that court believes it's inherently dangerous. And so um, it's certainly an issue to be aware of. And, and if you're you know, involved in, in pesticide application, and you need to make sure that you're really policing what's going on, make sure those labels are followed, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to your applicator, and then maybe most important, make sure you've got insurance that covers whatever type of application you're doing. Well, and I know from talking to uh, some peers in um, the agriculture industries, they a lot of the problem does come from folks when all of a sudden there's a diversification of crops in a certain area. Everybody was doing cotton and now all of a sudden your neighbor's doing something different 
and he doesn't maybe necessarily appreciate when you airily applicate uh, right, <laughs> your right. your pesticide, and and maybe before you could be a little broad, and now you've got to be real narrow. Uh, so right. I think it's really good advice. Go ahead and make sure that you're following the label. Make sure you're talking to have that conversation with your neighbor, and you're probably a whole heck of a lot less likely to get in trouble there. The, that, yeah, that's exactly right. One of the uh, 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 issues that you speak on frequently is private property. Big, big topic. Uh, can encompass a lot of fun things. Uh, for our friends who um, are really active in the state legislature uh, for the past three sessions, I think it's been now, uh, that has probably meant some kind of imminent domain reform. And there's been several big bills uh, that they have tried to push through the process. Our association has been supportive of, uh, of those. And unfortunately that hasn't, um, come to fruition yet, but what are, um, I guess some of the emerging issues as they relate to, um, eminent domain and private property. I know that, uh, our friends who are tied up in the high speed rail cases had just had some news dropped on them recently. Yeah. I mean, eminent domain is a huge issue all across the state, right? And it's something that, that, really faces a lot of rural landowners and you know we've had everything from pipelines you know going through the hill country there have been some highway projects um you know around lubbock they're putting in a new outer loop the high-speed rail so it's just an issue that impacts a lot of texans and, and frankly that there's a lot of emotion around uh when you know you find out hey the state or a company who's been given the authority by the state is here to condemn our land um so it, it's a big issue the most recent uh, ruling that came down was in the high-speed rail case, uh, and that's where an appellate court um, reversed a trial court decision on whether or not the companies that are planning to build the high-speed rail are considered railroad companies or interurban railroads. Um, and, and that may sound like a strange question, but, but the issue is really interesting. Um, so what the, the plaintiffs, the landowners in that case, allege is, look, these companies don't own any trains. They don't own any tracks. How can they be a railroad company such that they have eminent domain power when they don't own any of these things, right? They're just on paper, this corporation that wants to build a railroad. Yeah. And the trial court judge agreed with that and said, yeah, they're not a railroad company. They can't use eminent domain for that high-speed rail project. Uh, Court of Appeals overturned that and said, no, if you look at the um, statute and you look at some statutory construction, actually, um, you know, in a statute, present tense also implies future tense. And so if they, you know, in, or plan to build a railroad, well, they're a railroad and they do have eminent domain power. Uh, uh, that's going to be appealed to the Texas Supreme Court. We'll see if the court takes that up on cert or not. Um, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if the Texas Supreme Court has to tell us whether this company is a railroad or not. Um, and that's a huge issue, right, for landowners in central Texas. When you think about the potential of a high-speed rail coming across your property, um, you know, when you don't want it there. Um, you know, it's one thing. People get real fired up about a pipeline, but at least that's buried in the ground. Yeah. This high-speed rail is a completely different ball of wax. Yeah. Well, and, and I think there are some or have been some similarities with folks who are concerned about are, is a pipeline truly a common carrier? So, you know, the property owners are, are rightfully always concerned that um, 
that eminent domain, if it's going to be used, is used properly, and that you're, you know, sure. truly, uh, uh, you're vested with that authority. If you're some entity who comes and knocks on the door and says, "Hey, by the way, we've got the right to survey your land," and you may be, you may potentially be on some approved route. So, FYI, oh, here's your landowner bill of rights, kind of thing. <laughs> understand the scope of the power that the, the condemning entity has. And I get a lot of phone calls of people that, that are just shocked and kind of say, how can this be? Like, how can they have the right to do this? The, the, the rights that they have are, are pretty um, extensive. Importantly, though, on the flip side, landowners do have rights in this as well. And this is something I really try to preach, right, is don't panic when they show up and just sign the first thing that they give you because you're scared they're going to file a condemnation lawsuit. Um, there, are, uh, there are statutes that protect landowners. There are time frames that give landowners time to, to deal with a lot of these issues. Um, you certainly can and should negotiate a, an easement to protect yourself and to try to get as much money as you can. Um, and, and if it's okay with you, I'm going to plug a, a little handbook that we yeah. recently put out. Um, I, Texas Farm Bureau sponsored it. I wrote it. It's kind of a handbook on um, eminent domain for Texas landowners. Uh-huh. You can get a copy of that from Texas Farm Bureau, um, or you can find it. You can download it for free on my website, the Texas Agriculture Law Blog. And that was just an attempt to try to educate people on what their rights are in that situation. Folks, folks are probably not aware of it until, like you said, they, they are presented with the experience themselves. Well, going through your your blog, I came across something that was really kind of just entertaining, but there was a spider bite case. And I don't want to get too much into it lest I kind of venture off and and not <laughs> and not present something correctly, but it had to do with landowner liability um and and guests on your property. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and that case is interesting and and I guess the overarching issue there is can a landowner be liable for sort of wild animal injuries on the property? Things like spiders, snakes, scorpions, ants. Um, and, and in Texas, the general rule is that landowners are not liable for those things. Um, there are kind of three exceptions to that where a landowner could be liable. Two of them are really wonky. One of them is important, and that was the issue in the spider bite case. Uh, and that exception is if the injury occurs inside an artificial structure, uh, in that case it was like a hunting cabin, um, then the landowner can be liable if they uh, had knowledge or should have known that there was the wild animal um, in that structure and somehow that was hidden from the injured party. In that case, the court ended up dismissing it and saying, Look, there was no evidence that the landowner knew there were brown recluse spiders in this cabin. And by the way, person who was bit, you could have seen them just like the landowner could have. Right. Uh, and so they dismissed the case. But certainly an issue, I get a lot of questions on, on rattlesnakes, right? If, if we let people come out to our property for whatever, and they get bit by a snake, am I liable? And the general answer to that is no. Well, I think it's it's a curiosity probably for some folks in our industry because of the amount of uh, public that gets invited on to private property, whether they're sure. you know in a retail setting or uh, wholesale or uh, you know some of the growers if they're opening up and and letting the public uh, you know come in for whatever reason. Um, there's a there's a 
kind of interesting part in uh, Texas law related to agritourism and some things landowners can do to limit their liability there. Um, you have a you have a couple of blog posts on there, and I think I saw a video of your kids uh, standing in front of a, a, a fence sign that is you know helps you limit your liability. But what what can somebody do there? Yeah, that's right. So there are, there are a couple of statutes. Um, there's the Texas Agritourism Act, which is fairly new, and then there's also the Texas Recreational Use Statute. What I would tell landowners are take a minute and do your research on those because they're really great liability protections if you have people on your property for educational or recreational purposes. Um, and for the, there's a couple of requirements under each one that are different. The Agritourism uh, Act, you do have to either hang up that sign that you mentioned or have a specific waiver signed. But if you're going to have people on your land for anything, you know, educational or recreational, so hunting, fishing, you know, picnicking, nature photography, uh, if you have like a field day or something like that, those statutes are really, really good, cheap liability protection. So I would just tell you, do your homework um, and, and take the steps to make sure that those are applicable because they're super good, uh, super beneficial for Texas landowners. Yeah. What is... Um kind of to close us out here, what are some of the emerging issues uh, in agriculture that you've seen related to COVID-19 um, that, I mean, it's, it's changed everybody's world, honestly, and that, that obviously agriculture is no exception there. So uh, what, are there any kind of legal issues on the horizon or is everybody just looking for some kind of relief? What are, what are you hearing? Yeah, I, I guess there are a couple things I would mention here. Uh, one of them is, um, you know, there have been several different kind of government uh, programs or government aid packages that have come out from Congress during this time. There was, you know, the, the PPP program. Most recently is an ag-specific program called CFAP. It's the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Yeah. Thank you. The Coronavirus Food <laughs> Assistance Program. Uh, and, and it's a pretty broad swath of ag producers that may qualify, um, some of whom may not have participated in government um, programs before. So I, I would encourage people to, to look into that and see if potentially you qualify. Um, Texas A&M po- did a really great um, kind of handbook on CFAP that was done by our Ag and Food Policy Center. You can Google that. You can find it on my blog. So that's one thing I would look into. Um, as far as legal issues that have come up, all of a sudden contract lawyers have become really important, and people are wondering why they didn't read the fine print in contracts on things like uh, force majeure clauses, yep. uh, right? And, and so there have been a lot of, of discussions and questions about, you know, look, we're going to have to cancel this event we had planned. Can we get our money back? Do they get to keep the deposit or the penalty um, and so that, that's been another major issue is, is contracts. The third thing I don't think we've seen necessarily yet or, or, or not much yet, but I think there's a lot of concern about um, potential lawsuits uh, due to the spread of COVID, right? So if you had an event on your property and you could trace back, you know, someone who was infected that was there, can you as a business owner potentially face liability? What if your employees get ill at work? Um, or it spreads at work, can you be liable? So 
I think there are a lot of liability questions there that we don't don't know the answers to, but I expect we're going to see questions about that uh, in the future. Well, and I know that that last issue was important enough for the governor, lieutenant governor, and I believe House Speaker to uh, in Texas to write a letter to the Texas congressional delegation and. Uh, asking them basically to give some kind of blanket immunity for business owners uh, because of the liability concerns. And they are un, really unknown right now. They are. I mean, yeah. You know, and the other thing is, I don't know how, you know, there's a lot of proof issues there too. How do you prove that's where someone contracted it or not? Or, you know, I don't know. It, it's a very scary time, I think, for business owners. And I don't envy people having to make you know, business decisions with that sort of liability fear. And, and right, not just liability from a legal standpoint, but look, we don't want our customers to get sick in our business either. Right. It's just a tough time. And, and I don't know what, what, you know, is right or wrong there. I don't know how the law shakes out, but that's certainly an issue that people need to be aware of, need to be, you know, thinking about, talking with their insurance agents about, uh, because it's a real concern. Well, so Tiffany, how can folks find you? Uh, give us your give us your uh, blog address, and and how could they reach out if they have any questions? Sure. So um, my blog address is uh, agrilife.org slash Texas Ag Law, or you can just Google Texas Ag Law blog if that's easier. Uh, my contact information is there. Um, email is probably the best way to reach me. It's just t dowell, so d o w e l l at tamu.edu. Um, and I'd sure be glad to answer any questions that folks have or, or try to you know point you toward resources that might be helpful. Well, Tiffany, we certainly appreciate it. You've been a, a wealth of knowledge, and I hope that we can uh, bring you back on some future issues because uh, I'm sure I've subscribed. I would encourage our folks to subscribe, and there's going to be some fun information pushed out in the next couple of months. Um, but thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jen, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. I want to say thank you to our audience for listening, and also a quick word of thanks to our guests, as well as the staff at TNLA for helping produce and edit this podcast. You can find the TNLA Green Report online at tnlaonline.org or via your Google or Apple podcast software. Be sure to subscribe and give us five stars. Thanks again. Thanks again.